You're listening to All Things Video. This episode is brought to you by TubeBuddy, the complete toolkit for YouTube channel management. This power-packed Chrome extension helps with everything from bulk metadata edits and trending keyword suggestions to thumbnail optimization, fan engagement tools, and so much more. Our team at Bent Pixels uses TubeBuddy to manage channels for major brands like SeaWorld and Live Nation, as well as celebrities like Kevin Hart and Joe Rogan. They absolutely rave about the product, and I'm sure you'll love it too. Visit TubeBuddy.com to meet your new best friend on YouTube. Thanks for tuning in to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Ryan Bourne, founder and former CEO of Audio Micro, which has been repeatedly named to the Inc. 500's list of the fastest growing American media companies. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, James. Yeah, my pleasure. So, Ryan, you have an extensive finance background and actually started your career at PwC. What attracted you to that path? I was I actually entered college as an art history major, very creative background. I did finish college with an art history major and a studio art minor. And what was going to happen was I found out early that I was going to graduate in three years. Initial zones very, I thought it was important to graduate faster. The faster you could get going in the career, the better off you'd be, right? You'd be one year ahead of the rest of the world, if you will. At some point, I realized in college that that was actually not good and that staying in college longer was a good idea because you didn't have to be in the real world. You could live the student life. And so I was like, I, I should pick up another major because if I'm going to graduate in three years with art history and studio minor, I should do something else that's more practical. So I was one day I was walking with a fraternity brother of mine across campus and he said to me, you know, my brother just got a job and he told me the amount of money that it paid. And I was like, that's nuts. I was like, wow, that's crazy. And I said, what does he do? What is he majoring in? And he goes, he's an accounting major. And I was like, I can major in accounting. I want to make that kind of pay right out of school. And this was around the time when Enron had their scandal. And there was a huge rush for public accountants, for better auditing, for better uh, Sarbanes-Oxley. Anyway, the next thing I know, I'm at a career fair. And they said, what are you majoring in? And I said, majoring in accounting. This is before I'd even taken a class. And they said, well, would you like a summer internship? This is, again, before I said, okay, where do I sign up for? They're like, wow. And it pays. And they told me now it pays. And I'm like, really? For a summer? Like, it was just the numbers were just mind boggling to a guy who's going to major in art history. That's great. So you've been an entrepreneur selling the dream even before it existed (laughs) for many, many years. Exactly. I was selling. And then, of course, I went back and and did major in accounting. And I did take that internship. And what what happened was after that internship, uh, and I'll wrap up the loop here, they said, would you like a full-time job? And this was before I had even taken, even entered my senior year. Wow. So I already had a job lined up for after college. And were you mostly picking up the accounting pieces on the job or learning through your classes simultaneously? It's funny. I learned all on my own. I felt like I taught college was a sort of an exercise in teaching yourself because you go to school way less than high school and it's almost, you know, all comes down to these exams, right? And so you really have to teach yourself the the business. So I just grinded my way through it, if you will. So I had that job all lined up. I did it as long as I could, but but this might sound like an interesting story, but the reality of it was I, I did not like it. And it wasn't a, a career for me. Mm-hmm. In fact, it, it hurt my, my stomach to come to work a number, mm-hmm. a number of times as I was as I was working as an accountant or mm-hmm. as an auditor. I really needed to get out of there. And so I ended up looking for my next gig and I found a company called Wire Image, which was looking for an accountant. And I found them on Yahoo Hot Jobs. This was back when Hot Jobs wow, okay. was the big yeah. job board. 
I don't even know if people use hot jobs anymore, if they've shut it down or not. But anyway, they were looking for an accountant. And that was how I got my start in digital media. Because what happened was, was Wire Image was licensing celebrity imagery. They were aggregating celebrity photos and licensing them to magazines, newspapers, blogs. The time blogs were emerging around the world. This is 2004. That sort of was my foray back into two things. One, it was it, I got to do, I kept doing accounting, but I got to do it not instead of public accounting where you're auditing people and annoying them all day and kind of correct their books and fix issues with their financial statements. You're on the inside helping companies keep their controls straight and keep their you know books together and run their operations. But I was also able to get back into art because we were selling photos and I looked at photos as, as art. I was able to sort of bring back home or back to myself that the combo of business and art at Wire Image as the controller. And you have a background in photography and painting. Is that right? That is. I, absolutely. So f- the painting came from all my sort of high school and college endeavors. I do a lot of oil painting, won some awards, the National Classic uh, Art and Writing Awards, the Outstanding Achievement Sculpture Award at Emory in, in, in college. But photography I actually got into at Wire Image. So that's a, if you really want to know about photography, I'll, I'll be quick because we, we'll, you know, we can get down to business at a certain point. But one day after my first year of working at Wire Image as a controller, I was in the, the office of the CEO and I said to him, you know, it's, it's around time for a bonus, right? And I basically said, I said, you know, I don't want a bonus. I said, here's what I'd like. I would like that camera that's sitting in the corner of your office. And I would like permission to take that camera out on my nights and weekends around New York City. I was living in New York and to photograph events for the company, but only on my nights and weekends. Mm-hmm. So I won't interfere with my work, but I'll get to be a creator and a photographer. I had no idea how to use a camera. This is digital SLRs. Things are not like they are today, but this is 2005, 2004. This is probably the end of 04. No, there are no smartphone cameras or anything like that, like nothing. So the first thing I did is I took the camera home and I read the manual cover to cover. And I literally just taught myself photography, our aperture, ISO, shutter speed, and got going. That's how it happened. And do you still practice photography today? Are you still painting? I mostly shoot my images of my of my child and our family and mobile photography. The sophistication of these devices has really picked up. So I do still have an, a, an SLR, but I find myself less and less moving towards it. And the last celebrity event I shot, so I shot celebrity events from 2000, end of 04 till 07. What were some of the highlights? Sorry, early, early, I guess I should say early 08. I shot the Met Gala in New York. I mean, I still get royalty checks. So Getty Images has 12,000 of my images. Anybody from, I mean, I have private parties with Sienna Miller to, you know, red carpet events with Jennifer Lopez, Mick Jagger. The list goes on and on. At this point, it's like I've almost sort of, I've pretty much covered every celeb at the time that was hot. These days, you know, the markets are pretty much. And Wire Image, photos. That's Wire a lot of Image was ultimately acquired by Getty Images? Yeah. Okay. So Getty Images bought Wire Image in 2007. The deal was closed in the middle of the year, and it was $208 million purchase. It was their largest acquisition, I believe. I still believe ever, but to date, it was definitely at the time. And it was a time when they were they were doing a good deal M&A. They, all, they also bought iStock Photo in that same year. They also bought a company called Pump Audio, which was their venture into music licensing. They later on ended up swallowing up a company called Jupiter Media. So right after that, you launched into starting your own venture. Yeah, that's right. When I was at WireMage, I was following the industry, kind of like, you know, we all do when you're engulfed in something, you want to know what the trends are and what the competition looks like, and what the landscape looks like and what's next. And so what I saw happening at WireMage was I saw the emergence of micro stock photography happening. And uh, in short, that means companies like iStock Photo were emerging, Shutterstock, Fotolia out of Europe. And, you know, I started reading sort of, you sort of these entrepreneurial articles about the 
the next titans of photography, if you will. And, and these were still fairly small businesses, maybe in the sub 10 million revenue range at the time that I caught, they caught on my radar. And I started, I thought, well, I, I would like to do that. Or, you know, we really should be doing that here, but we were not a micro licensing out. And the difference between micro licensing and traditional is that micro licensing, your crowdsourcing content, anybody can contribute to you and your price point is pretty low. Typically a dollar, you know, per piece of content, or sometimes or less, and it can also be obviously sometimes it not. Is that an outright purchase or is that uh, some a, sort of rev share for royalties in the future? It's a license with, so content providers provide their content to the platform. The platform licenses it out to users of that content or customers, if you were clients. They're not buying it out outright. And typically a revenue share goes back to the content provider or the creator. If photo sells for a dollar, like the platform's taking 75 cents and you're only getting a buck, but they've got so much volume at these days and, and they've aggregated all the customers that there there can there is a living to be made in micro licensing. And certainly at a time it was there were people doing fairly well. Um, but I'm not I'm not entirely sure today how microstock photographers fare. You know, meaning like if you can make 50 a year, 100 a year. I'm not really entirely sure where it falls out right now. That's microstock. And so I saw that happening in the industry. Of course, I wanted to do it. I thought why, we should be doing a wiremesh. Wiremesh is a little bit different because it's editorial licensing. It's licensing of celebrity photos. And you can't really crowdsource. Everybody thinks, oh, you could just crowdsource those. Like, like everybody's got a smartphone. They'll just, but you know what? Celebrities only go out in a few select places. They go out in New York. They go out in LA. They go out in London. They go out in Sydney, Miami, and a few, right, Vegas, a couple spots, but, and they're very controlled outings. So like the press credentials are very, mo- there are only so many press credentials that get handed out. You're only a certain number of really good spots that get handed out so you can really get the good looks at those events. And at the end of the day, bottom line is you can't really that well crowdsource a celebrity microstock offering. And there are other reasons for that as well. I wanted to do, that was the first idea. So this is where, really where, where I'm going with all this. This is where Audio Micro story came from was I wanted to build a celebrity micro stock and it actually was called Image Collect. And Image Collect Inc. was the first name of Audio Micro. So the vision was it had nothing to do with licensing of audio and it absolutely had nothing to do with AdRev, which is where I think we're ultimately going to take the conversation, which is what really got big and what had all the value and why we, we had the nice exit. But we started Image Collect. And I was going to crowdsource celebrity and all the things I just went through, I didn't know at the time. I just figured, oh, you could just crowdsource celebrity photos and like it'll just take over the world of celebrity licensing, just like commercial photography had had uh, Microstock take over it. So you learned the hard way. I learned the hard way. And what what it was is I couldn't get photos. So the chicken for the egg thing, when you're building a marketplace, it's you need content in order to to license, in order to have buyers for it. But if you don't have any buyers, no one's going to really want to provide you with any content. So that's obviously the challenge with starting one of these marketplaces. But at the end of the day, there is an answer to all that. You have to get the content. So you have to be able to, you know, convince or work with the creators to get their content on spec at first in order to bring buyers to the table. So I tra- what I was trying to do is I was trying to get celebrity images. And I couldn't get it. I couldn't get archives. People didn't want to sell them for a dollar, an image for a dollar each. They thought my price point was way too uh, low. And they were like, I'm not going to sell my stuff for that low to you. Sorry, you seem like a good guy, but, you know, I needed a good million images to get going. And I couldn't get it. So I went to plan B which was this other idea I had, which was let's do microstock instead of, but not, not in commercial photography. The first one was image collect, which was editorial photography. My next plan B was let's do microstock, but in music. And that's what audio micro is. So uh, you're originally became. from Nashville and yes. grew up around the music industry. Is that part of what prompted that interest or why, why the music? It's a great question. I am from Nashville. My grandfather was a musician all of his life and a music teacher. I had zero education or interest in music throughout my entire life. 
So I happen to come from like this musical town and, and even a musical family, but none whatsoever. I'm just a straight up entrepreneur. And what ended up happening was I looked at music as content. And I said, if Microstock photography has already taken off, Shutterstock, iStock Photo, Fotolia, they're doing great. I don't want to just follow in their footsteps. Celebrity photography, Microstock, I couldn't get going. Ultimately, I did. But in 2008, 2007, couldn't get it going. What's another type of content that could be crowdsourced? that needs, you know, typically gets licensed and is complex and needs a much more simple system. So music was that. Video was obviously an option. The reason I passed over video and, and looking back on it, it might've been a silly one because there is a ton of opportunity in, in stock video. See what, but, like Jukin and... Jukin, Videoblock, great entrepreneurs, both those companies, great companies. I'm super impressed. But what at the time for me, I remembered the struggles we had at, with video at WireImage. And the, the thing was, video was so big and clunky because storage was just not as cheap as it is today. Amazon S3 was still not where it's at, you know, now. I guess it started, well, it probably could have. Right? In 2007, yeah. YouTube had just still barely new. been acquired by Google, still kind of building that reputation. So Absolutely. So I passed on video and I went to the next one, which I thought needed it, which was music. And way I looked at when I when I started digging into music, I discovered that what I well, at least what I thought was that the music industry in terms of licensing and what I meant by licensing was licensing content into video productions because those are going to be the buyers for a sync what's called a synchronization license. That that was the market I was going after. It looked a lot like the photo industry did. 10 years before Getty sort of came in and rolled in and wrapped up the photo industry. And also it looked like a lot like the photo industry did before Microstock emerged, meaning it was fragmented. There were various players in the industry. You had to secure rights from multiple places. And if you're getting master recording, you might be getting that right from a label. If you're getting publishing rights, you might be getting that right from a publisher. You might be getting that right from four publishers. If it's a co-write, a song that's co-writers co -writers, or has various publishers with various different percentages on it. It just seemed like a mess. So I dug in... I think my naivete, even though I did, again, the musical city and the musical fam, none of it, none of it was, uh, it was, I was just naive. I had no idea what I was getting into. And I think that that worked to my advantage because had I known how complicated it really is in the music industry, I might've been scared off by it, but I was just like, I'm going to make something happen. Like I'm, I'm, I'm onto my, I had caught the entrepreneurial bug at, at Wireman. And, and the reality is, is I, I've been an entrepreneur all my life. I didn't know it. Like I was always selling mixtapes as a kid, you know, and like doing, figuring out lemon, running lemonade stands, like figuring out ways to have, you know, cash to take, you know, to put gas in my car and, and or to go to concerts, right? Like I would just figure out a way to make it happen. I just thought that was like what life was. I was just like, you have to come up with ways to make, to earn money. What do you think that is? Is that genetic? Is it part of your upbringing? What gave you the proclivity to want to be an entrepreneur? I think, you know, there's nature versus nurture with children. Are they just that way by nature or do can you instill in them certain traits well you're not an entrepreneur I, I don't know <laughs> what i'd say is i think it was just in me I, I don't know at the end of the day i didn't i was so i didn't even know it i didn't know the word entrepreneur until i was probably 25 and and when i figured out that that was what you know the ceo of wireimage was that he was an entrepreneur and he had built this business and him and his co-founders and all of them were entrepreneurs and i was like that's what i am like like that's but i've just been naturally like navigating my way through life like that what's the hardest part about starting your own company the single hardest part, you know, having been through it now, I would say for me, there was a lot of isolation because I was the only founder of the business. I did not have co-founders. And I was that a conscious choice or just because you were out was. there and trying to make something happen? Okay. It was more of 
oh, well, Ironman got sold for $208 million and they had to slice the pie up like seven ways. <laughs> there was like, quite a few co-founders there. And I was thinking, well, they all did great. You know, it's, it was a big number, so you can slice it nine ways and it's still okay. Uh, for me, it was like, I don't know if I can slice it that many ways. And But I ended up finding out pretty quickly once you raise venture capital and you that take on slice up anyway, right? And you have an option plan and stuff. So it worked out great, but um, you just that was why. And so I said, I more pies or bake a bigger pie. That's right. That's right. You got to make your pie bigger. That's right. Or bake more pies. You got it. You got it. You know, looking back on the journey, I feel like I put a lot upon my myself individually and I just worked, I worked so hard and by hard, I mean like long hours too. Just there's a lot of effort in there and a lot of, I took everything out of my personal life, like everything. In fact, I was listening to one of your interviews, you know, recently, and, and there was another entrepreneur, and he's talked about work-life balance, and I said, you know, that is the kind of stuff I'm, I'm, I can preach today. But when I was in it, I had none of that. I mean, everything in, was on autopilot or automated. I would anything that was a distraction or not business-related, I would completely ignore, from home life to you name it, you know, social life. That I think is, was the hardest thing for me. But at the end of the day, I ha- we had a great outcome. I need to learn to separate. So let's talk a little bit more about what Audio Micro is because there's so many different components. Can you break that down for us? So Audio Micro Inc. is the corporate name. And I, t- I go back earlier to the story. It was originally called Image Collect Inc. When we got our first round of capital, the vision and business plan was around micro licensing of music. So we renamed the company Audio Micro Inc. Now, that was cool. We renamed it. I think it was 08. It's around September 08 when that happened. That was when our first capital came in. It was, was $500,000 from DFJ Frontier. The business became a music, crowdsourced music licensing solution, similar to iStock, iStock Photo for Music. Now, the price point wasn't around a dollar. It was actually quite a bit higher. And these days, it's around $50 for just for, just for one-off license of a, of a piece of music. So that was there was a little bit. It wasn't as micro as you think. But anyway, we ended up in early 2011. That business hummed along. And it did, it did fine, but it really didn't show the growth that VC demands, let's just say. It wasn't, you know, going to go under, but it also didn't look like it was meeting that inflection, hockey stick inflection. So in early 11, we decided to do, try a pivot, if you will, of the, you know, to use one of the words that some people cringe at and some people don't. It, I'll use it. I don't love it, but I'll use it. We, we pivoted and that pivot was into launching more marketplaces. So we had success in audio market in our audio marketplace. What we decided to do is we decided to launch Image Collect finally, because the celebrity market, I was able to aggregate celebrity photos at that time. What, what happened was is the print industry got crushed between 2007, 8, 9, 10 to around 11, where people, you know, today they're still not buying, you know, print, right? It's like, it's something like 30% of what it used to be, right? The amount of like newspaper, magazine. And so photographers' royalties declined along with that. A lot of photographers were used to 200 $300, $400 placements per, per single image in a magazine. And, and sometimes if it's a cover, it can be, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, even hundreds of thousands, even millions if it's a huge exclusive. But anyway, they, were, point, they needed more revenue streams, it sounds like. They needed something. Yeah. And, and so they were willing to go to the digital world and they were willing to try Microstock in a lower price point to, to attempt to open up to a larger number of buyers. Because literally, if you wanted to buy a photo, if you want to license a photo, you have to call on the Getty way. You have to call Getty or Wiremage. You have to get an account established with them. They have to give you download permissions. Then you download stuff. Then you publish stuff in your magazine and then they invoice you. And then, you know, 90 days later, you pay the invoice. This is like totally bizarre, like long antiquated system. 
and digital, you know, it's immediate on demand, but at the same time, like customers don't have to go through that screening process. If you call Getty and you're like, I want to use your photos, they're like, who are you? Where are you publishing? What does your publication look like? What's the size of it? Like a lot of like pre-screening, pre-qualification, which is rightful for them to do. I get it because they just don't want anybody to be accessing their images and taking stuff down and, and pirating it and abusing it. I just thought that you needed to open it up. All you got to do is watermark it online and sell it for a lower price point. It worked. And at that time, I was able to aggregate images. So we launched in our pivot image collect infographic stock, which is an infographic marketplace, Cartoonsy, which was a cartoon marketplace, and Choose Tattoos, which is a tattoo marketplace. And we were aggregating tattoo art from tattooists and, and licensing it out to people that would want to go get their tattoo. They could try it on, try before you buy, if you will. You would download the print or the art. You could kind of size it up. You could show it to your local artist and say, this is the dragon I want you to do. That's clever. And right. Do you have any tattoos? I do not. <laughs> Another industry I entered just- with, with no, you know, no experience, which... Anyway, which, which I think is part of the reason why Choose Tattoos honestly didn't do that well. I think I think despite my lack of musical business experience, I have an interest in music. I think we all do. I think if you, it's like if you ask a room full of people like who likes music, I think every single person in music or who likes chocolate chip cookies, like basically, <laughs> right? Or maybe chocolate. Everybody raises their hands. Like music's one of those things. So there's some like drive towards it but tattoos is like no i really didn't i just wanted to make money mm-hmm. and it didn't work anyway but here's where I'm, I'm, I'm gonna wrap up the pivot story is we at the same time we launched those which was on stage and you can watch the launch of those um, on youtube we were at the launch conference so it was a first launch conference which is now you know pretty well hyped and i'll follow all these investors but but back then it was it was fairly small and chris Saka was a judge for my pitch that's amazing yeah did you get to interact with him? Did he give you good feedback? He gave me great feedback and he was a very nice guy. And I got a uh, tiny bit of interaction with him afterwards and told him I'd follow up. And of course, he never wrote back to me because I was probably just, you know, a small potato, mm-hmm. like whatever, polite pass, if you will, right? Maybe now you can be angel buddies. You know, maybe. That, maybe. <laughs> On the ride home, I remember from this from this launch conference, this is where a lot of, this is where the whole business changes. I know I'm sort of hijacking and just going on a rant here. I was driving, I had set a meeting with YouTube and I went into that meeting hoping I could get a deal with YouTube where they, for instance, might have an audio marketplace and license, you know, clear music to their community. YouTube would then be the customer. Um, YouTube's users would be the customer. YouTube in and of itself would be the distribution platform. So they would have they would have a marketplace just like um, they do today. They have an audio library. They do. Yeah. Right. Which they provide for free. Correct. How did they power that? Uh, They did buyouts. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they, which is angers creators in the music industry and and to all ends because, you know, they really just are giving away completely. I literally, like, Audio Micro literally competes with free. Like, YouTube is my, I became competition to me because they did a bunch of buyout deals, started giving stuff away for absolutely free to creators. Instead, you got to go to Audio Micro, you want to get a license. It's like between 50 and 300 bucks, depending on your use, you know. I wanted to do that marketplace. And I thought, okay, here's how we're going to blow the business. They're going to do a marketplace. It's going to be powered by us. Our content through our API, it'll be on youtube.com forward slash, for instance, music or audio library where they ended up putting anything now. And we can go now, we can go retire on a private island because there'll just be so many transactions going on on YouTube. Business blows up. DFJ gets their money back. I get my, you know, I don't become a failed entrepreneur. (laughs) Right. Right. You know, like that's the dream. What ended up happening in that meeting? Wait, real quick to set the stage. You're in San Bruno? I was in San Bruno. Okay. And who were you meeting with at YouTube? I got the meeting. It took me two years to get this meeting. 
let me start by saying it was called a ju- this was like a junior guy but he you know even junior folks there are like super sharp because they're google people right but anyway i had emailed them cold you can't contact youtube like if you want to get a meeting with youtube you're screwed and linkedin wasn't like it is today either back then like you can't just even hunt down the title of the guy or gal and the name of the guy or gal and even attempt to maybe guess their email like you're just not getting into youtube you have to like network your way in there so i had brought on a board member who knew someone at google ventures and said, I'm a board member of a portfolio company that has a music library. They could really, I think there's really, you know, solid partnership that can be negotiated or discussed at least. Can you can you take a meeting at least? And he emailed that person at Google Ventures. That person at Google Ventures contacted someone at YouTube. Someone at YouTube had a more junior folk take take the meeting. And I would go to this meeting. Here's my pitch. You guys have an audio marketplace. We're going to power it. We're gonna, you're going to use our API. Everything's cleared. All your creators are no longer going to have copyright problems ever. All those takedowns from all the major music label, uh, music labels are going to stop happening. Everybody's going to be happy. You'll sell them for a dollar a piece. 50 cents will come back to us. We'll pay our, our creators too. I could tell like five minutes in the meeting, it was just not happening. It was totally not happening. And like, you can just feel it out. Like, it's like, ah, okay, we thought of that maybe or whatever it was. And it was just like, and I'm like fishing for things to keep this conversation going because this is YouTube, right? Like this is, this is where it can all happen. And what ended up happening was he said to me, like almost as like a consolation prize. Yeah, he goes, let me ask you a question. Of all your music that's currently in YouTube videos, what percentage of you said was licensed, would you say was licensed from Audio Micro legitimately? And what percentage of it would you say was pirated, stolen, copied, whatever, however, whatever phrase you want to use, but wasn't paid, wasn't paid for. I just, you know, my best gut was like 10 to one pirated. I mean, it really is because people have a hard time, I think, paying for a music license. Like it's just not something that, comes that easy for them to consumer to you know whip out their wallet for he said well you know we have a n- new system coming out or system i forget it was new at the time or it was, it was, it was in fairly nascent stages and it can allow you to find the music on that's being used in youtube videos and if you want to you can take those videos down but if you, if you really want to you could monetize those videos and actually partake in the advertising revenue you can leave the videos up and partake in the advertising revenue stream that that comes around along with them would you like you know access to the system essentially i mean this is kind of how it was framed i don't think those were his exact words or anything like that and i was like yes where do i sign you know like and he's like he's comment. like well we'll email you a contract and i'm like well, no i'll sign on this napkin like right here right now because i want you know but really what happened was, was i was so excited was because a light went off in my head immediately which was not only did i need this tool but i knew that everybody in the music industry wanted this tool or, or should have been in this meeting if you will. And I ended up walking out the door in San Bruno and on my six, seven hour drive back to LA, I made phone calls the entire time and literally called every library, music library that I had networked with in the first three years of Audio Micro. I had met all the major music rights holders and tried to get them to work with me. And they were like, no, we don't want to sell our stuff for low price point on Audio Micro. Like we don't, we're not really that interested in it, but we like you, Ryan. If you have another idea, come back and let us know. This time I was calling them going, Hey, I know you didn't want to do audio micro with me. I get it. Like your stuff's too good. It's a much higher price point. Like I'm not, I'm not, you know, bugging you about that. I would really like to administer your YouTube for you. I will build technology and tools around the system that YouTube has, and I will help monetize your catalog and enforce your rights, take down videos from time to time where appropriate, keep them up, you know, when you want them up and squeeze as much juice or help you optimize your earnings and wow. make as much money as you can. And so the ad rev was born right then. And we initially called it the audio micro ad rev program or like ad revenue program. 
like the audio micro ad revenue program. And I was in a meeting with a client one day and he was just like, you got to really rebrand this. And I'm like, what is it? What is it? Oh, it's ad revenue. Okay. Is ad revenue.com available? Of course not. Mm. But adrev.net, 10 bucks, five letter domain. Bam. John Todd, the system, the YouTube system you continue to refer to is content ID. And to give listeners a little bit of background on that tool, it uses audio and visual fingerprinting and watermark technology to detect copies of a reference file. In your case, an audio uh, track. In other cases, maybe a video asset. And if it detects that that content uh, belongs to another rights holder, is pirated or or is a violation of copyright, it will then allow the rightful owner to apply a policy, which means they can monetize it, they could issue a takedown notice, they could block it in certain areas, etc. Absolutely. That's the system. It became known as the, the content ID system and everything you said, exactly. Yep. You put a fingerprint in, you can then find every YouTube video that either audio or video that contains a matching portion of that. And there are some limitations to it. Despite its limitations, it, it does work for at the end of the day, function very well. Especially for audio. I absolutely agree. It sounds like you were very early and you recognized the opportunity to administer the rights for these other traditional music rights holders. And then you were building software around it to complement the content ID system. So tell us a little bit more about the tools you developed. The first tool we developed was a mass ingestion tool. So a difficult part about the content ID system, if if you're a large rights holder, large meaning you have a very substantial number of copyrights, individual pieces of content. So let's just say you have 10,000 videos. Or let's just say you have, I I had a client of 250,000 recordings. If you want to get that into YouTube system, it's not simple. If you want to get one file in, okay, they, believe it or not, they have a WYSIWYG onesie uploader. I mean, anybody can drag and drop an MP3 file or an MOV file and fingerprint one. When you got 250,000 at the time, the really, and I still feel it's this way, I'm a little bit out of it, but it required, you had to script your way in. Okay. And not only do you have to use, you know, scripting, XML scripting and, and, and around music, there's complicated setup because you have to ingest a master recording. And then a lot of times you also need to set up a publishing asset too, that relates to that master recording. So, and all so the associated metadata, right? All the metadata those. from each side. There's mm-hmm. metadata on the recording side. There's metadata on the publishing side. They have to be also again, pointed or married to each other um, so that both parties are getting paid appropriately. And in my, my client base, I had a lot of clients that were both recording. They owned, they owned both the recording and the underlying composition or publishing rights because they were production music libraries who typically, if you're doing stuff for sync, meaning you're placing stuff into videos, both sides are required. So a lot of my clients already had both both rights. So we built a whole tool around ingesting huge volumes of content and the content could come to us through Dropbox. It could come through us through box.com. It could come through us through Hightail, which used to be called we, we transfer. It could come to us through FTP. So we could give our clients our, uh, an FTP Dropbox for themselves. We could pull it from their FTP. Literally, they would sometimes email stuff in. It sounds nuts. DVDs or CDs. Wow. It's I'm not. I'm not kidding. Or and then <laughs> of course, tapes. and honestly, the more yeah, beta tapes, <laughs> but the more popular one was 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 hard drives. Sure. So so thumb drives and it lately you know became thumb drives when you can fit 64 gigs on a thumb, but or more hard drives I and mean, hard drives and hard drives of content would show up, and we would we would we would their metadata would come in all kinds of formats. The reason we kicked butt, one of the reasons was we're really easy to work with. You know, normally if you want to deliver, you know, copyrights to a client, a content ID administrator, I would think they'd be like, well, here are our specs. You need to have your data in these rows and these columns and your files in these formats. We would go, no, 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 no. Send us exactly what you have that's sitting around the office in whatever format it's in. We will throw it into our engine 
and determine what, if anything, additional needs to be reformatted for it to be ingested. And oh, most of the time, it would just our scripts and our own technology would encode. Very smart. And yeah, and it made it made it very simple. That was a great part about working with us. So we ended up growing extremely rapidly. And I spent four years from 2011 until August 2015, when you know the company had been had been acquired, and I've I've since you know moved on. Although I am I do remain an advisor to the business. Just selling and selling and selling and selling and selling. And obviously building out a great team, a wonderful team around myself. I had a great right-hand man and Noah Becker, who's you know continuing to run a lot of the operations at the company. And a great, just a great team in general, great finance team, uh, finance director and Peter and, and operations guy and, and, and Ben. But selling was what made it successful. So for four years, it was deal closing and deal closing, deal closing, showing them our ingestion How did you learn that? I mean, you were just out there hustling or did you have any background in sales? <laughs> I think I have a natural instinct for sales. And I think being an entrepreneur sort of just made it really come out. But for me, at the end of the day, it's all that matters. It's really all that matters in business success. It's not all that matters, obviously, in life. I mean, come on. But like, if you want your business to take off, you've got to sell. you got to sell hard, hard all day and be on all the time. Mm-hmm. So I think I maybe like a thousand deals. I literally would close a deal a day was my goal for four years straight. Yeah. So, so I think we got close to, we got, I didn't process. end up with a deal a day, but it was close to that. What are the takeaways? <laughs> you know, you mastered the sales process at some point. What are the things that just, you know, you really learned through that experience? Well, I think trust and transparency flat out. Okay. So what I saw in the YouTube ecosystem at the end of the day, I still feel like I see it to some extent. I'm, I'm not trying to call anybody out or anything like that. I don't want this to be taken the wrong way. But it, there is a lot of smoke and mirrors, is what I was about to say. They're just basically people, businesses that they're not entirely 100% forthcoming with exactly what they're doing. And that was just not our way. We were just very straight up about it. Like, we're going to take your recordings. We're going to use our industrial technology, adjust them in the system. And I didn't fully answer your tech question. We built a huge accounting and royalty reporting system around that was very robust, allowed them to see their earnings, see all the videos that you know contain their music and all kinds of stats around those videos, which was novel at the time. Everybody talks about it now, but we were like really early in that. And we were just very straight up, like we're going to do this for a small administrative percentage. AdRev advertises on our self-service platform that it's 80-20 split. So, you know, th- that's for self-service and full-service clients, which were bigger rights holders, we would typically... You know, we, we, we typically bend a little bit and we could offer them a little bit better than an A20. And we were just very, you know, straight up about what we were doing. You know, we're fingerprinting your stuff within the system. If there's anybody that's a legitimate licensee that gets claimed, we're going to work to whitelist them. We're going to work to release their claims. We're going to work to make sure it doesn't happen with them again and kind of keep the peace, explain to them why it occurred, explain the importance of protecting copyright, even for them as a, as a, as a legitimate licensee of it. Why'd they get a claim? Well, if you didn't get claims, everybody could just take this content. And then why would you even bother paying for it? Why did you spend, you know, a couple thousand dollars on a music license if you if anybody could just take it and there was no, you know, enforcement around it? So walking them through the value of things, that's what made us different. And that's where so it's part of the sales discussion. But there's there's a certain rapport you build with people. You just gotta be, I think, straight up. Like if you're yourself and you're a likable person, I mean, I guess, I mean, that has something to do with it, then that's, and you are honest and transparent with people through the sales process, like this is a business deal. So obviously there's something in it for us. We have to take some to keep the lights on, you know, 
the office for our service. You're going to get, you know, lion's share of it. And we're going to be a lot of our business was service based. So, you know, how quickly we respond, how, you know, involved we are in, in understanding their needs and following up with them. And uh, listening is a huge component of it, right? Listening, coming up with new monetization opportunities for them. Custom reports can vary for big, big media and big rights holders. They have all kinds of deadlines, right? They have all kinds of budget meetings they have all kinds of things that are going on and they need something prepared for them about their YouTube presence and regarding their stats, for instance, I'm, you know, kind of being broad about it. And we would do these sort of just custom reports that would end up going into like board packages for other companies and like that being their partner and delivering that. But that was, there's no charge for that. That was just baked into like our service, you know? So those kinds of things, I think really differentiated us and really kept clients happy. So to rewind, you went into this YouTube meeting, which could have ended in disappointment and dejection, but you had this light bulb moment where you realized, hey, there's a 10 to one business opportunity with the amount of my content, which is being copied versus, you know, what is being properly licensed. And this could absolutely apply to a much broader market. And then you just chased after that with full force on the sales side. So AdRev became kind of the breakout success of Audio Micro. And as you touched on, was ultimately acquired by Zealot Networks for a little upwards of $20 million late last year. So how did you come about that? And, and you know, why did you feel they were the right partner? That's all accurate. There's press stories out there about over, we sold a majority of the business for over 20. So of course the whole business is valued at larger than that. So how did, which part, how did the exit come about or how did we choose, how did we choose Zealot as our exit exactly. partner? Yep. I watched Wire Image succeed and how it grew and it's, you know, year over year, quarter over quarter growth rates and its ultimate timing and exit to Getty Images for 208 in 2007. Now, what happened after 2007? The market peaked. Eventually, the real estate you know, market crashed. The stock market crashed. The whole world was looked like it was right crumbling. And what I learned from that was that, in short, Things move in cycles. Timing is everything. Timing is everything. And selling a business for a large multiple may have a lot to do with what I would call hopping off the train at the right time. And in fact, like I wrote some blog posts. I used used to blog. I haven't probably updated my blog in ages, but I used to blog. And at some point I wrote one called like hopping off the train at the right time. And it was a story about Dig and how Dig could have exited for like, I think over a billion. And you know what happened to Dig? It became worthless. Really, it is. It's kind of sad story, if you will. I mean, there's a lot of fun lessons learned, positive takeaways, but I didn't want that to happen. And we were growing very rapidly. So as you mentioned, we were ranked. So we were number 2013. We were on the Inc. 500, fastest growing media. Number two in media in 2013. We were number two in media again in 2014. We were number five in media just like you said, in 2015. Now, it's called the 2015 Inc. 500, but it's actually based on your 2014 numbers, if there's any confusion around it. And, you know, those growth multiples, to, to be, a, you know, a fastest growing media company in the U.S. or even let alone any ranking system, even in LA or even in, like, downtown or something, is it good, right? And, and it, what I look at is, like, you can't – it's almost impossible to recreate those things – forever that kind of growth forever and it's also almost impossible to do that without capital infusion so we had only raised one and a quarter million bucks and as we touched on earlier that's still but the multiple that i raised that okay it's only one and a quarter million but it was a very low pre-money valuation very low and i I won't say exactly what it is but let's just say very low and so i didn't necessarily want to take on more capital we were we were a cash flow positive and profitable business and we're about breaking in 2011 and then um, positive all going forward from there. And I didn't want to take on more capital. So what I'm getting at is like to grow, continue to grow like that seemed very difficult. So I felt like looking for a buyer seemed like 
a good idea simply from a metrics perspective. Like if there's any time to probably exit, it's when, you know, the growth is at this pretty wild state. So I pursued a number of acquisition discussions. I did not use an uh, iBanker. And why is that? Um, that sort of hits on a lot of things about me, which is that for better or worse, which is that I'm very scrappy. I'm very frugal with the business. We, we did not have a, a class A office space. We were very, very, very sort of cost efficient. We did not have a lot of bloat. There were not a lot of company perks. There are not a lot of time theft, if you will, like what I would call you know lazier or, or unpresent employees. Everybody worked really hard and contribute to an effort. And and so anyway, that that's kind of the mentality of why I didn't want to use an iBanker was like, I didn't want to give. Typically they want whatever it is, X percent of the transaction. I think it's in the single digits, but it can be it can be probably anywhere from two to like five. I don't know. And then they usually want a retainer. Let's call it a couple hundred grand or, or even it could be even 50 grand. Whatever it is, it's somewhere in that range. And I was like, I'm not giving writing a check for that. Like I'll go. I know who I think the buyers are. I'll go solicit them on my own or in some instances they were just landing in my inbox already. So for better or worse, I went and did that. And well, you have um, a basic understanding of finance from your background. Yes. Were there any risks that you were worried about of potentially not running the process the right way or getting the potential outcome that you wanted from that acquisition process? I think if I could go back and do it again, I probably actually would use a banker. Okay. So and why is that? Because I think I might have found a broader base of potential buyers. But not to say that actually I didn't find the right one because mm-hmm. I do I do feel like it went to the right home. But I think that we might have gotten a larger bidding process. That's all sure, I'm getting sure, at. Sure. You know, broader That's bidding fair. process. Yeah. But I, I worked it on my own. I had a number of potential you know, acquirers and term sheets. And eventually the Zealot was was the best one to go with. The tiny bit of background on that is like, so Zealot really started, it's such a big company right now. Like it's huge. They've made something like 18 acquisitions in the past 12 months. Absolutely. That's like, you gotta be careful about what their public numbers are, but they're, but they're big, right? 18, right? So, so yeah, I just don't know what, what's out there and what's not, but we were the first. And so in a way, Zealot really is at risk. Audio Micro Inc., if you will. What happened was Zell was formed, and Danny Zappin, who is the founder of Maker Studios and the founder of Zealot, he capitalized Zealot initially as, like, if you will, shell company with a good deal of, of there was some there was some outside investor money, and there was, I think, a good deal of his. And then it bought my my business, and so. It's not, I can't, I shouldn't say Zealot is AdRev, but like Zealot was their capital that then bought AdRev that then snowballed into 18 other acquisitions and other capital. At this point, it's like this giant company with balls of various capital and stakeholders and things like that. But we were the initial business and we were, you know, we'll do, we'll hit the 500 again. It'll come out in the 2016, you know, but, you know, numbers, but we're continuing to grow really rapidly. And we had, what I mean is we had nice cash flow. We had a very nice balance sheet. We're a very healthy business. And we had, we had, we had a nice uh, PL too. And I think that they, uh, I think it was a very good deal for both parties. I'm certainly, you know, very grateful and very thankful to Danny and to the Zelt team for, for buying the business and for, and, and for continuing to kick, kick butt with it. They're going to continue to turn it into, you know, what it should be is, which is a rights management powerhouse. Great success story on both sides. And it's exciting to see what Zelt will do in the future. I love the name. And, and as you said, they're doing big things. So we'll, uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah. So what's next for you? 
as you look at the media landscape, you've, you said you've kind of entered retirement, but exploring <laughs> what's out there and continuing to stay active. So, you know, what are you thinking about? Yeah, I was, I'm kind of kidding with the retirement. I tr- I, I, I've been taking, I've taken the last two months off. I stepped down from the company and, and took an advisor role. So, so I've sort of day to day. Was that a hard thing to do? It's very hard emotionally and psychologically. And look, I don't expect any, uh, Buddy, to feel sorry for me or anything like that, or, you know, it's like it's like not, but it, but it's hard. You know, you do well financially, but like it doesn't it doesn't change you as a person. You still have you know feelings and love for things, and I just have a lot of love and pride for the business that I, that I started out of my apartment eight years ago and turned into a great lasting company. And and, to, and the hardest part is stepping away from the team. I just such great people. So if, if, if you know, Adref teams that were listening to this, you know, I miss you guys, you know, mm-hmm. and um, that was the hardest part. The day to day, look, there's some burnout. You go at something for eight years hard, as hard as I did. You eliminate all those things from your from your personal life like I had done and you only focus on business. And it was time for me to be with my family and to really kind of step up my role in the home and and and, and take a step back. So it's been a little boring because your mind's, you know, as an entrepreneur, I'm, I'm, I'm really searching for, for some stimuli. I've had enough time to kind of, also, you know, get in shape and, and again, just sort of be around the house and, and, and be, a, be a dad and a husband. But the it's weird just because like no one you, when you're CEO of a company, everybody wants to talk to you, right? Like everybody wants to do deals, right? And you're, you're sort of there's a lot of activity around you and you walk in. There's a certain pride about like, oh, I'm CEO of this business that I built, especially if you're the founder of it, I think. Like if you're a hired CEO, maybe it's a little different, but... And now when I now I don't have that. I'm like a guy that was that was the CEO. I founded a company and it got really big and I, we sold it and did well and and there were some uh, you know employees did well too. I'm no longer that guy. I'm just like the people are like, what do you do? It's, it's like it's so people are like, well, what do you do now? And they're like, I'm not doing anything. And then you kind of feel like a loser, like in a weird way. You're like, I'm not doing anything. Like no, I really I literally like don't Such do anything. I'm like identity. reading the news, you know. <laughs> like that's what I do. Right. Such a big part of your identity. So, so that's what I would say. It can be. It can be an. Uh, it's an emotional challenge that I think I need to get through, and I'll, I'll be through it pretty soon. And do you think you'll start another business? You want to continue to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think I don't want to go. Necess- I do. I only two things I know in life: media, con- content licensing, and accounting. So I think if I stray too far from that, I won't. I don't have any background. It'll be a real. It'd be a real learning process, if you will. In fact, I might even need to go back to school. So I'll, the chances are that I'll probably, you know, find something that keeps me stimulated in the content licensing or media world. I also obviously can do it from a different level. I can do it from an investor level. I can fund another business. Um, I could buy a company and grow it from there. So I'm open to anything. But right now, I'm really just trying to take look back and, and reflect, kind of plan. Some do some investment planning and that kind of stuff, and just also advise and just keep make sure those guys are still doing doing a good job. At Terrific. That. You also serve on the board for LAVA, the Los Angeles Venture Association. Tell me a little bit more about that. I did. I haven't been that active because I, as part of sort of eliminating things, as the as as AdRev grew like crazy, I I it was one of those things where I felt like I couldn't I couldn't be as involved. So I like haven't been as active, but lava, what I will say is an amazing organization and it's what got me funded. So when this is, this will tie it all together. You asked me about shooting f- photos and things like that. When I first moved to LA, I needed some money because I was actually, you know, in between wireman's had gotten acquired and I moved out, I moved from New York out here. So I used to photograph events on nights and weekends, like I was saying, and one of, I went to a lava event trying to get interested in the Los Angeles venture community. And I met the team at Lava and I ended up sort of volunteering, if you will, at one of their events as a photographer. And 
I was a VC related event. I was like, meet the VC. And they have a meet the VC event every year. And it's a great event. I encourage any entrepreneur to, to go to Lava's Meet the VC if you want to get just get your feet wet. And what I was doing was I was photographing the Meet the VC event. So maybe I got a comp ticket. But I was a scrappy entrepreneur. I mean, back then, it was you know, probably a $50 ticket. Like, that's great. $50 saved. So all I got to do is take photos. But anyway, I went up to DFJ Frontier partner Scott Lynette there and took his picture. And after I took his picture, I said, can I pitch you on my startup idea? And I pitched him on Audio Micro. And six months later, we had that first $500,000 investment. So Lava Photography, it pays to be scrappy and it pays to get out there and hustle and it pays to be involved in, in that organization. So I ended up That's moving awesome. my way up to being an uh, entrepreneurial board member and, and sort of helping them behind the scenes. And they've been thriving, but I've been less involved since the business took off. You've also been active as an angel investor in Internet Marketing Inc., New Condos Online and others. What do you look for when making investment decisions? Wow. So I did. So I made an angel investment. I'll just walk you through my history real quick. Just to get them straight. I did make an angel investment in Wire Image, which turned out to be one year later, like literally like just over a year, maybe it was a year and a month. It got sold to Getty. It's just enough for long term. And I was like, that. wow, these angel deals, like, like, uh, you know, I should be doing them. This was when I was, I didn't have any money. I was just like kid living in New York. And I thought having an extra 20 grand in your bank account, like I'll be a hotshot angel. And I invested in the company that I was the controller of because I knew our numbers were good. So I felt good about that. So I was like, I put the money in those founders and in us because I had I had visibility, right? I had information rights and visibility. New Connors Online investment was literally for a friend of mine. And he was just, it was just a guy, I just knew he would be a good entrepreneur. I just, it just felt right. It was a fraternity brother and I gave him a small amount of, I think that was 25K, I think why I was like 40K or something like that. He ended up actually sort of, it's sort of an odd situation, but he ended up pivoting that into Internet Marketing Inc. So I ended up with like shares in both companies, kind of like a, I was like one check, but I got shares in both. And Internet Marketing Inc. is one that took off. And it became, at first, New Condos Online took off and it had, it was like one of San Diego's fastest growing companies, but then the real estate market crashed and that business really didn't do too much. But Internet Marketing Inc., he pivoted out of that into doing paid SEM, organic SEM campaigns. Now he does all kinds of stuff, you know, from even influencer campaigns, I believe. That business got really, really big. He made the Inc. 500 a couple times. And so what I would say is that was just a going with the gut. To answer your question, was going with the gut. But lastly, I read, and I don't know if you read, and I think it just rings true to kind of really answer your question. Jason Calacanis recently wrote in his newsletter about what makes what has made him a good angel investor. And it was basically, I'll try and sum it up, I might, I might mess it up, but it's basically this. It was, I invest in founders. And the idea means doesn't make a difference. And it's people that are going to persevere and have been, can get through the difficult. And it's, I, look, if somebody's done it before, like me, that's why I, I think it's so much easier. If I want, want to put, get capital together, it's just so much easier because I've been through it. But when I was getting started, it was like, what are the traits that Scott Lynette saw on me that made him feel that way? And I, I don't know what it is, but I mean, I have that period of perseverance. I know, I know from the other side, I would only angel invest in a guy that I just thought would never give up ever give up. We'll stop at nothing to make it happen. And pivots are important. It's one thing to never give up on a stupid idea that's going to fail. That's bad. Like, don't go working on something that's ultimately going to fail. You need to have perseverance. But like, at a certain point, you got to be have the wisdom to know that it's not working. Like at Audio Micro, it was okay. But like, I knew we needed to do other things. And what I did was I kept them all in the same business. So I never bailed on my investors. I said, look, guys, they invested in me. If I'm going to pivot into Image Collect, Infographics, Cartoons, which all shut down except for Image Collect, then, you know, and I'm going to pivot into AdRev. That's all going to be one company. And so when we had an exit, AdRev was one that took off, but our initial investors, they they participated. They did great. You know, it was over like 10x return. 
I would invest in a guy with the same sort of perspective, which is like, he's just never, he's going to pivot. He's going to stay true to the investors. He's going to do whatever it takes to make it happen and ultimately get you your return back and not just sort of work on side projects, right? Or like take his eye off the ball. What has been your greatest failure as an entrepreneur and what did you learn from it? I have a lot to learn in the home. And, and I think as an entrepreneur, if I could have failed in an area, it would be, you know, just being a better brother, father, husband, and just being so laser focused on work all the time. I think, I think that I, that it, it, look, it had a great outcome. I might've done it differently. Wow. That's really powerful. I think it's great that you are aware of that and want to work on that. I mean, a lot of people probably wouldn't go to that answer, but I think that's, that's important. We all need to kind of keep that in perspective. Thank you. Uh, if you were starting a business in digital media today, what would you do? Well, am I investing in a business or, or, or it's just, it's just like, what trend would I, would I latch on to? Sure. If you were going to go out and start a business in digital video in yeah. the music space, what would you want to wake up every day and tackle? I'd say this. I want to work with good people and I'd want to work on something fun and new. What I would do for me, this is my answer. And this is not advice for some, what someone else should do. I've always been a distributor and administrator of content. So I built platforms, you know, even from working at Wireman's, we had a platform for distributing still imagery to Audio Micro, platform for distributing audio to AdRev, administering copyrights and YouTube system, building a lot of tech. I actually have never, even though I go back to my art and I talk about being, you know, a sculptor and a painter, I have never really been a maker of digital content. And so I think if I could do something fun, it might be, it might be partnering with an owner or maker of content and helping them on the distribution administrative side, but together. Instead of me just building a distribution platform and having lots of partners come in, that would be fun for me. I'm not gonna say it's necessarily gonna be, but I would, I would like to figure out a challenge within the maker themselves and how we can just blow them up and make them as much money as they possibly can and make them you know, financially successful in that regard. I hope you get a chance to do it. That sounds Thank like you. fun. So what recommendations or advice do you have for people listening? Just to close things out, top three things you would recommend. Keep your body healthy, your back in particular. So your posture, the chair you sit in, be comfortable because we all slave away at these machines. And over the long run, they will beat you down. And I, I learned it the hard way. So, you know, after the business, it was like I spent, you know, 90 days in chiropractic, you know, literally like like twice a week, you know, and I feel great now. So that work and, and keep your body healthy. So going to the gym and work out your legs. <laughs> For those guys out there that don't, that do a lot of arms and think that that's- They work out the mirror muscles. Yeah, yeah. Work out the lower bodies mm-hmm. is way more important. Do. At the end of the day, execution is all that matters. And, and like, I'm not that much for small talk. And I think like, you know, it's, I'm just all about go and go, go, go and do like, that's the hardest part. And so you have to take action. What are the five action items you're going to do today? They're going to move the needle forward as much as possible. And so just work on those action items and get them absolutely done. And I would just say, be curious from accounting to, you know, getting my way into photo licensing and ultimately into music licensing, like dig deep in various areas and don't be, you know, don't try not to get too pigeonholed, but master, so master certain skills and then move on to others, you know, like basically what I'm getting, you know, I, I would never survive as like a corporate lawyer. Like I could do it, but I would just be, I would know the skills, but I would just drive myself nuts after a certain period of time. So be prepared to sort of hop among skill sets every, you know, between every two and five years. And, and look, for me, it was, it was hard work. So work, I'm sure you'll hear that all the time, but like, you know, like, like, Put down the TV, shut it off, 
don't watch the NFL. I love Tennessee Titans, but I can watch them now. But like, I didn't watch them for years. Ignore it. It's not important. You know, you spend your weekends, you grind away, grind away to business, you grind away to an idea. You're going to get it. I used to work Thanksgivings. I used to work Christmas. I didn't care. You know, I was bored. I was so bored on Thanksgiving. All I wanted to do is get back to work, you know, and, and those, that, that hard work is what, if, if, what, if my advice is, do you want to have an exit over, you know, end up with a nice, you know, financial outcome that those are the things that I, that I did to get, to get there. And where can people find more about you? So you can, ryanborn.net is my, is my personal blog. If you go to the contact page and scroll down, my email is just listed there, but I'll give it to you. It's ryan.l.born, B-O-R-N at Gmail. Born Ryan on Twitter um, or RyanBorn.net is probably the best way to get me, you know, or, or really just shoot me an email. And actually, there my phone number I think is listed there. You can even text message me. So wow. it's, it's, it's a Google Voice number, but I'll read it. It's a text. So yeah, so you are very open to yeah. But absolutely, hit me up. Hit me up. I love it know, for sure. Cool. Anything from you know ideas, uh, advice, or you got angel things to pitch, or you just want to know if you know think or swim, sink or swim kind of thing. Hit me up anytime, folks on the interwebs. Ryan, this has been so much fun. Thank you again for being on the show. I absolutely loved it. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me, James. Yeah, my great. pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time. Hey.